This is the Monday, May 29, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. We're uploading this episode for Memorial Day 2017 because we wanted to pay tribute to the men and women who've given their lives in service to America. I had kept that Monday open on the calendar, and as it got closer, it was just this empty box, waiting for the right book to fill it. Well, fortunately, the perfect author contacted me through Twitter with a book on the Great War in New York City. The Great War has deep roots in the Empire State, which sent more men to fight than any other star in the flag. Next Door, New Jersey played a big role as well. Hoboken acted as a prime embarkation point, with doughboys taking the train down from the massive Camp Merritt complex. Now, I have a personal connection to Camp Merritt, because it was in Creskill, New Jersey, where I grew up, and it straddled nearby Dumont. Today you can't see too much of it because it's mostly built over with houses as it was decommissioned and most of the buildings burned down after the fighting stopped. But there is a tall obelisk right in the middle of a traffic circle with a nice big grass ring around it. Every year our Memorial Day parade when I was in the Creskill High School band would start right at that monument. We'd sit there getting ready, tuning up our horns, just generally doing what high school kids did, but it made me feel so connected to the Doughboys. It made me remember that however long we're here, there are things more important and bigger than us, and that the men who served in that war really paid a huge price. It was an honor to play a small part in remembering those who fell on the battlefield, and it's an honor today to remember them on the show. The greater New York area was an important hub for men, prisoners of war, and recruitment throughout the conflict. And also, it's a place where the coffins returned, so that some of the men could be buried in the soil of their native land. Following the armistice in 1918, the city of New York sought to remember those who'd lost their lives over there, and erected more memorials for this event than any other. They couldn't all be giant obelisks like Camp Merritt, of course, so they had a lot of smaller monuments. Well, to mark the centennial of the fight against the Central Powers, we'll explore the legacy of the war to end all wars in the 21st century Gotham. Leading us on this journey is Kevin C. Fitzpatrick, author of World War I New York, a guide to the city's enduring ties to the Great War. He's not only a World War I reenactor, he's also a real-life United States Marine, with previous books that include The Governor's Island Explorer's Guide and 
The Algonquin Roundtable New York, a historical guide. You can find him at FitzpatrickAuthor.com or K72nd Street on Twitter. The number 72NDST. Okay, now that we've completed basic training, let's join Kevin C. Fitzpatrick and visit World War I New York. I'm joined on the line by Kevin C. Fitzpatrick, author of World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show, and thank you for your own service in uniform. Thanks. It's great to be part of the show. First off, Kevin, I want to describe how well-designed this book is for tourists on the go. I've mentioned before on the show that I love to hold a book. I'm not a big ebook reader. I will, if I have to, sit there with a PDF if it's a book I really like. But I like the feel of a book. I like the weight of a book. And if it's compact, as World War I New York is, you can fold the thing. It's a soft cover. You can jam it in your pocket. There's maps in there to help people find their way around the city, marking everything clearly. Plus, I think it's important that your book has pictures of the memorials and the plaques because the plaques are oftentimes wordy and you don't have a minute to sit there and look at them or it's dark or they're, they've been worn over. Some of them are almost 100 years old now. So how did you come up with the design, the idea for the book, and how did you hope readers would look at and use World War I in New York when they go on their own history tour? Thanks so much, Dean. Well, I mean, the book is smaller than six by nine, so it can fit in your backpack or in your cargo pants. And thinking about walking around New York City, the five boroughs, and making it a way that you could, either in a car or by subway, go out to these different neighborhoods and attack it and see as many spots, memorials, and also places where the war really touched I've done a couple other guidebooks that were also organized around neighborhoods in the city. And when I look at lists of places to go, I need to have it organized by the neighborhood. And a place like Manhattan is made up of multiple neighborhoods, uptown, downtown, west side, east side. So I wanted to make it accessible like that so that all of Central Park stuff is together, all of lower Manhattan is together. So you could design your own walking tour based around my maps and my guides of places to go. And I also wanted to mention, I kind of went back and forth on whether or not to say this because it sounds a little too much like salesmanship, but I flipped the book over and I said, what's the price on it? You know, And the book cover price, less than 20 bucks. And I thought, if I lose this, I can get another one right away. I don't feel like I really blew it. I mean, we don't want people to lose your book, but <laughs> I just thought that's another great feature. You're making it accessible in every way you could think of. And I thought that's a really perfect design for a book like this by somebody who loves the history and wants to share the history with everybody out there. Make it something that's available and let them know what that statue is. They've walked by maybe a hundred times or compete with the other things that tourists are coming to see. Just really try to put this book in their hands and put the history in their hands. Well, it's funny you say that because you're a book nerd like me, and a history book does not have to be a full-color book because a lot of my images I'm getting from archives, family collections, they're black and white anyway. You know, World War I was black and white. So yes, the second half of my book, which is about monuments, memorials, and we go to nice parks and cemeteries, that could be in color, 
But does it really need to be in color? Not exactly, because the rest of the book is all stuff that's 100 years old. So having a black and white book that's 200 pages, that cuts down on the cost as well. And I like that you start it by bringing us in the past so you can show us what still endures. I like the first line. I always pay special attention since I know authors often linger over that first line, often agonize over it, decide what it will be. Yours is American involvement in World War I started and ended in New York Harbor. In that harbor, we have Governor's Island, which is often an afterthought to New Yorkers. Over the centuries, it's been an afterthought. It's sold for a dollar not so long ago. That was Governor Pataki's deal to give it to the city from the state. The state owned it. If we could travel back in time 100 years, though, to the Great War, what would we find on Governor's Island? Well, for people outside of New York City that might not be familiar, Governor's Island is a 172-acre island in New York Harbor. And it's only not even a 10-minute ferry ride from Manhattan. And you pass it if you're taking the Staten Island Ferry or you're taking the ferry to visit Liberty Island or Ellis Island. And it was a military post for 200 years from the colonial era up until 1996. It became a city park um, only 13 years ago, and half of it is a public park, and the other half is the Governor's Island National Monument run by the National Park Service. So 100 years ago, in 1917, you would have seen biplanes landing on the south end because there was an airstrip there. When that airstrip was in use, pilots trained there that then later went to France and became our first Army air pilots. When that was removed and we used Governor's Island as a warehouse depot and a place to ship everything from horseshoes to hand grenades, a railroad was built out there. So there was a very small little railroad that went around Governor's Island. Except for that being removed in the 1930s, most of the rest of Governor's Island still looks like it did when the Army up and left in 1966. All of the officer homes are still there. Castle Williams is still there. Fort Jay is still there. The places where General Pershing was and the piers, they're intact. It literally looks like the army just up and left last week, and it was 50 years ago. <laughs> it's a really beautiful, amazing uh, spot of history right in New York Harbor. Some think of it as like the sixth borough because it is literally like giving a new park back to the city because it was inaccessible for so many years. And memorials there more than any other part of the city, I learned from your book. Yes, because after the war, the 16th Infantry, which was part of the Big Red One, the 1st Division, when those soldiers came back, they started naming all of the streets and avenues after their fallen comrades, including the first three Americans to be killed in November 1917, Hay, Enright, and Gresham. So those memorials are there, as well as memorials to battles and big things that they're involved in. So they changed the names and they left all those memorials and monuments that are out there today. So there's close to 50 of them that are still in place. Speaking of street names, there's many of those echoes of the Great War. One is York Avenue in the city, which, as you point out, in World War I in New York, people may think that that's after the city's heritage, but it's not. It's after Alvin C. York. Who was he, and how did he become the only man who lived to see his service memorialized in a road name? That's a great question. So many New Yorkers think that York Avenue, which is on the east side of New York and you know, at one time was Avenue A up that far, is for the Duke of York. And it's not. Alvin York was a conscientious objector. He was very religious and he did not want to fight. 
but he did follow his conscience and he did become an incredible soldier. And he was a hunter from Kentucky, so he was a very good shot. And because of his bravery in defeating so many Germans single-handedly, he won the Medal of Honor. And he won it while he was still alive and not posthumously. All the other roads in Inwood in the upper part of Manhattan are named after soldiers who were killed in battle. But York, on the 10th anniversary of the end of World War I, came to New York for a gala occasion, and they named the street for him, and it's still in place. I used to work on York Avenue at the Animal Medical Center. I used to mention that every now and then because I would look at it and I'm the kind of person that looks at signs and looks at historic plaques. And I thought that was great to see that in there. And you have also a picture of him in the book. It's great to look at his face. I'd never looked at his face. Back when I worked there, we didn't have the internet that you could just pull it up. And I had just never seen him. It was great to see him looking right back at you just like the base in Governor's Island. It was as if he would just speak to you that it had just been taken a week ago. Well, the place we used to work, it has another name. That's Bedpan Alley. (laughs) All the hospitals over there. Yeah. They used to have uh, quite a different atmosphere back in the late 80s, early 90s than it does today. We also had the carriage horses there, which uh, used to think they might get stolen too. So that was a much different time for the city. But Mm -hmm. that's one thing about these. These endure. A lot of these plaques did get stolen and still do, unfortunately, which drives any person who loves history nuts and cares about these people because you have scrap metal. People just steal it and they steal the garbage cans. They'll steal anything. And that's something that happens here. Often these monuments then, these memorials, have to be removed or they have to be redone. It's nice to see people will cast a new plaque for them if it does get stolen or removed or damaged. There are over 150 of those memorials, though, to the Great War in the city. That's a lot to take care of. It's far more than the Second World War. Explain to our listeners who Robert Moses was and why, when he comes on the scene, he changes how we remember the Second World War compared to the Great War. Well, I highly recommend Robert Caro's Pulitzer Prize winning book about Robert Moses called The Power Broker. Moses was a New York planner and builder from the 1920s to the 1960s. He was never elected to any office, but he had incredible power. He was the parks commissioner. He was in charge of roads, bridges, tunnels. He decided where housing projects were going to be built, where highways were going to be built. And as the parks commissioner, he saw how many small community memorials were erected all over New York City after World War I. So when World War II rolled around 20 years later and people wanted to start doing that again, he put his foot down and he said, absolutely not. He favored one big, grand World War II memorial than all the small community memorials that were erected after the First World War. And that's why the only big World War II memorials, there's one in Lower Manhattan at the Battery for soldiers killed at sea, and in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn World War II monument, which is being renovated as well. But there's no other big, and there's not very many, World War II monuments and memorials around the city. I just know of a couple plaques. Once I read that in your book, I started thinking there's one on East 7th Street, not far from McSorley's. It's east of McSorley's. That's to a mm-hmm. bunch of folks. And that's kind of one of the only ones that I can think of, really. Well, those are community memorials. Those were funded and paid for by local citizens. That's not in a New York City park. Mm-hmm. And actually, Central Park has a moratorium on any kind of monument they're not putting up any more sculptures or memorials in Central Park. The only thing you would see might be little 
plaques on park benches or small little things. If a corporation donated something to renovate a public space or a playground. You had one for Captain Lieutenant Buckles, who's the, the last man who served in the war, passed away. Just a little plaque on what looked like a park bench. Is that a park bench? Yes, that's in DeWitt Clinton Park, also known as the Corner of Hell's Kitchen on 11th Avenue. Frank Buckles was the last American doughboy to die um, just a few years ago. And I'm not really sure, Dean, who paid for that park bench, but it's right next to the fantastic Flanders Field doughboy that the Flanders House, which is the Flanders government representative in New York, has funded the restoration and maintenance of that fantastic Burt Johnson Doughboy sculpture, one of the 15 Doughboy sculptures in New York City. You also write in World War One New York that there was a trend towards so-called living memorials between the wars. We have the armistice, then little do the people know that they're gearing up for a bigger and more terrible war later. What was the thinking behind that design, and where can people go today to find them? That was, rather than having a sculpture or a statue or a tree memorial. That was following the era of like, let's not have any more sculptures or monuments or things in bronze or stone. Let's have something that gives back to maybe physical fitness or well-being or contemplation. So in Queens, in Rigo Park, you have Lost Battalion Hall, which is a recreation center. And it's not just a New York thing, Dean. If you think of the Chicago Bears, they play in Soldier Field. Hmm. That's a World War I monument. War Memorial Stadium, the old place where the Buffalo Bills played, that was a World War I monument as well. So people all over the country were doing this living memorial to soldiers, sailors, and Marines of not just having a sculpture or a statue, but they wanted to have something that brought people together, that you were doing something related to physical fitness or well-being at the same time honoring those heroes. Liberty Island, to go back to New York Harbor, World War I New York taught me that that star that's on the statue's pedestal, which I would have thought was built when they had that big penny drive that we talked about in the book, The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty by Richard Schwartz, that's actually a remnant of Fort Wood, the star. It was built in 1807. Nearby in Jersey City, there was the Black Tom explosion. That was one thing they were required to pay for after armistice, I think, was to make restitution for that. So tell people a little bit about that who might not be familiar with the actual act. Well, it was mysterious. In the middle of the night, hundreds of tons of ammunition exploded on the piers. It's incredible that we even have the Statue of Liberty because it was so close to Jersey City. It was only a few hundred yards across the harbor. It could have been much more severely damaged than it was. Some of the copper skin was punched by shrapnel that came across the water from Jersey City. You know, that's when they closed the arm in 1916. That's when they replaced the torch in 1916 because of the, the explosion. New Jersey was the transit point for arms and ammunition coming from around the country that was being shipped over to help the Allies. But nobody was ever caught. No one was ever prosecuted. It's just assumed that it was the work of German sabotage. But, you know, it could have been a careless cigarette or cigar Nobody really knows. There was only, I believe, one person who was killed in the explosion, and it's a huge mystery. But yes, Germany was made to pay for war reparations for that after the war. 
we think of New York as being pretty isolated from this kind of thing as far as wars go. We've had terrorist attacks that everybody knows about. But as far as this war and being such a huge part of it, I wanted to mention to people how the Black Tom explosion is memorialized today. In Jersey City today, there's two places to look for a monument to Black Tom explosion. One is Liberty State Park, which is the exact spot in Jersey City where the piers used to be and where Black Tom Wharf once was. And also in Jersey City, there's a Roman Catholic church called Our Lady of Chequa, which is a Polish community. And they have a beautiful stained glass window, Dean. And it is dedicated in Polish to the citizens that suffered after the bombing. I love Liberty State Park. It's nice to be able to be so close to the statue. You realize just how close it was to getting blown apart, especially when you consider my personal bit of detail about the Black Tom explosion that I just love that they heard it as far away as Maryland. So if you look at a map, you're going all the way across New Jersey, across that little neck of Delaware. That's pretty far away to hear an explosion. And the idea that the statue survived is just incredible. Yes, it could have been lost. It was very nearly lost that day. One of the enduring ties of your subtitle stands at the crossroads of the world today. That's Duffy Square in the northern corner of Times Square. The seven and a half foot tall statue of Father Francis P. Duffy may be familiar to people who've walked through there. It's very imposing. He looks really bold, a tough guy. You could see that if you were maybe a misbehaving kid and he was your father, you'd probably straighten up there in church, right, and (laughs) stop fidgeting. There was talk in the fall of 2016 that his statue might be relocated to make yet more room for tourists in Times Square. One of the facts I gleaned from World War I New York is that if they do relocate him, that's not rare at all, is it, for the statues in the city? A lot of statues get moved. The Red Hook Doughboy was moved. Uh, Flanders Field was moved. Abingdon Square and Greenwich Village was moved. I don't think Father Duffy is going to go anywhere for a couple of reasons. One, that sculpture is site-specific, and it's site-specific because that was his parish. When he was a parish priest after World War I, That was his flock right there in Times Square. He ministered to Broadway stars, vaudevillians, prostitutes, dancers, performers, tourists, regular people. And so that's why his sculpture is in Times Square. Not because it's Times Square, but it's because that's where his parish was. It's right there on 47th and Broadway for a reason. There's also the Father Duffy Coalition and members of the 69th Regiment, of which he served, that really take the sculpture under its wing and look out for him and do different grassroots fundraising and and things like that to really support the maintenance and care of the statue. It is under the care of the Parks Department, and Parks Department has a lot of weight in the city. And so when they redesigned um, Duffy Square several years ago to put the new TKTS booth behind it and those nice red steps, that Celtic cross I don't think is going to move. And he's looking right at George M. Cohan, too. So you have a nice little um, two big World War I guys right next to each other. And the 69th, the Fighting Irish, another connection to McSorley's Old Ale House, and also to that Celtic Cross. So they're going to be pretty tough about defending him. He's really one of their own. And it's good to see that, even if it's a little disturbing sometimes to pick up that copy of the New York Post and see, oh, hey, they're thinking of moving this statue. It's great to see people come out of the woodwork almost and say that they're going to defend him and keep him there. Well, also part of the agreement with the city is that is a war memorial 
they do shoo away people that are doing solicitation and things directly in front of it. So they keep the buskers and, you know, the costume characters away from Father Duffy, not because he's a Catholic priest or it's sacred or anything, but because it's a war memorial and that's what that area is for. And it's not to be making money or panhandling, you know, directly in front of the statue. I think everyone's fine with the tourists being there. It is Times Square. I think what people might have an issue with is the commercialization around it. That's that's not okay. I want to move uptown on one of those maps in your book. Go to Central Park. Carl Ilava, a veteran himself, sculpted one of the most stunning memorials in the city. It stands at Fifth Avenue on 67th Street, and it shows the 7th New York Infantry, the famed Silk Stocking Brigade, breaching the German Hindenburg Line. What impact do the faces on that memorial have on people when you're giving one of these tours and you encourage them to, instead of just walking by it, which we do with so many things in the city, really stop and look at those faces, look at the hands, the weapons, the body language of these men. What impact, I wonder, does it have on tourists that you're giving tours? Well, that is another site-specific sculpture. And if you look at it in the spring or summer when the trees are in bloom, and you look directly at it, it looks as if the men are charging out of the woods at you, which is where they fought in the Argonne Forest when they broke the Hindenburg Line. And so each one of those faces shows bravery, courage, fear, resilience, and they were all sculpted from the sculptor's friends and common people that worked near him in Westchester County. None of the figures in the sculpture are actual soldiers. He used salesmen, friends, neighbors, to be the models for the sculpture. The artist's hands are the hands that are on all the figures holding weapons, rifles, each other. Those are the sculptor himself. Our guest for this Memorial Day 2017 episode is Kevin C. Fitzpatrick, and his book is World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. You can find him at FitzpatrickAuthor.com or at K72nd Street on Twitter. Trav SD at Travelanche writes of World War I New York, quote, This World War I book will help even the lifelong New Yorker look at the city through new eyes. The past is all around for you to see if you're looking through the right glasses. Kevin, I've seen you in the doughboy uniform that you wear to honor these soldiers and also to put people in that moment. I've seen your Twitter account, so many of the things you have on there that you tweet out that are reminders of the war that are all around the city. And now you have this book to put into people's hands. What one thing do you tell people to do so that they can really see the city through the eyes of those great war soldiers as much as possible? I would say going down to Pier A. Pier A is at the tip of the battery. It's over 125 years old, 140 years old building. You're looking at the harbor just as the doughboys and also the women, don't forget the nurses and Salvation Army and Red Cross volunteers that went over. As they left the harbor, that's right where they went. And the harbor hasn't changed very much, except some of the buildings on the sides might be different. But they're sailing right past Pier A, is selling right past the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. That hasn't changed in 100 years. That feeling of expanse of New York Harbor absolutely would have been like 100 years ago, no matter what they're doing. On the deck of a steamship, leaving New York City and going you know, over across the Atlantic to France. That's one place. The other place, Cypress Hills National Cemetery. It's our only U.S. cemetery in the five boroughs. 
It's older than Arlington. It's been closed to new internments since the 1940s and 50s. And there's 24 Medal of Honor winners there. It's in Brooklyn. It's in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. Dean, every time I go there, I'm the only visitor. And it is incredible that there's 18,000 veterans and dependents buried there and they get no visitors. And I think that's because it's been closed for so long that granddad and great granddad are there, but the children aren't going to be visiting those people any longer. And so there's graves going all the way back to the revolution, but there's an incredible amount of World War One and Spanish American War veterans that are interred there, including one of my favorites who I write about in the book, Dan Daly, the Marine Corps hero who won two medals of honor and might have won a third in France, but we'll never know. But I love Cypress Hills National Cemetery. And whenever I can give a plug to that and get people to go and a walk over there, it's, it's very, very nice. Sounds like a future episode. I'm already booking you for things before we finish this one, but <laughs> I love to go there. Always want to pay my respects. People who were forgotten, they were just like us. That's part of the Flanders Fields poem, right? And they were once like us, and now they're dead. They're among the dead. Mm-hmm. We all want to be remembered, and I think it's great. There are all these little memorials all around. I know Robert Moses wanted the one big one. I know people have a lot of problems with him, and when I saw that, I thought, of the people I know who complain about him. And I thought, well, here's one more thing on the score that I'm sure they're going to hold against him that we don't have as much, but they can very quickly take over the city, I suppose, if we had too many of them. Right. Madison Square Park is another popular destination for New Yorkers, tourists, and folks shooting movies. This despite the fact that it's built on a mass grave, by the way, which I'm sure you know. <laughs> What will readers learn about the park as they flip through World War I New York, and what will they see if they go visit today? If a tourist is visiting, they definitely should look at the Flatiron Building, which is right across the street from Madison Square Park. But Madison Square Park, of course, has the wonderful Admiral Farragut sculpture, but it has the World War I Memorial Flagstaff with the eternal light on top. And the Madison Square Park Conservancy that looks out for the park has just restored it with the Parks Department. So it's illuminated once again, and it's being rededicated this Memorial Day to the Great War veterans. It's a nice little park, and there's a Shake Shack right in the middle, (laughs) very well-maintained little place. And that is the location where the annual Veterans Day parade begins. So the ceremony with the armed forces right there at that flagstaff, and then everyone steps off there and marches up Fifth Avenue up to Midtown. I would be letting down my university, Rutgers, if I didn't mention my fellow Rutgers man, Joyce C. Kilmer. A campus in Piscataway, New Jersey, bears his name, but he also has a legacy in the city and some memorials there for him losing his life when he was fighting over there. What remains of the man who penned the iconic poem, Trees? Well, his house is still in Washington Heights, also a place he lived on 23rd Street, There is a tree memorial for him, of course, in Central Park. There's a park named for him in the Bronx. There is a park named for him in Brooklyn. And he definitely is remembered as a fantastic poet. I think maybe because he wrote trees, his tree memorial in Central Park, which is right near Sheep Meadow, it's over 100 feet tall. The tree they chose in the 20s, it's doing fantastic. It's a beautiful, beautiful oak. So great that it's still there, still growing, and that picture's 
beautiful you have in the book. And I love when people plant trees. One of the places you can go and see them is Fremont, Ohio and Rutherford B. Hayes' house. And there are still plaques from presidents from mm. well over 100 years ago. There's one planted by Grover Cleveland. There's Every time somebody came, <laughs> Rudd would just shove a tree sapling in their hands and say, hey, go plant this. I think that's great. And it, it reminds you of how different we are from trees. And it's nice you could sort of touch something and be touching the past, a living thing. Well, the centennial of Kilmer's death, of course, is next year. And I'm working with some people to push him for the New York State Writers Hall of Fame because he really should be uh, remembered next year as not just a great war poet, but just as a fantastic writer and human being, too. So we'll see if we get him some credit next year. I hope so. It's too bad when somebody's remembered, I usually say on the show, just by the gunshot or just by their end. When they have a full, long life, he didn't have a long life, but when you have a full body of work, as he does, and you should be remembered for more than just how you died. And if you're cut short, then, well, let's remember you. It's a centennial. People still speak about him today. Everybody knows that poem, Trees, not in the way we know maybe a soap jingle or a beer jingle or anything like that. We know it because it's moving. It's a moving poem. Mm-hmm. There was a phrase among the Doughboys, heaven, hell, or Hoboken, four of every five men in the Allied Expeditionary Force departed from New York Harbor. What role did the Mile Square city of Hoboken play in the Great War, and why that slogan? Well, the slogan comes from General Pershing himself. In 1917, it was his wish to get us in and out by Christmas 1917, so he said heaven, hell, or Hoboken to get us back to where everyone shipped out from. Hoboken, Jersey City, Weehawken, and across the river on the New York side, very important place for cruise ships and steamships. So when we had to ship men and women and material out of New York Harbor, this is where it went. So the Mile Square City was important because this is where all the steamship companies were located. All the, the waterfront was warehouses, steamship offices, bars, hotels, restaurants, all tied into the shipping business. Now, also, Hoboken was a very German city. And so the government started seizing all of those buildings and businesses, and after the war, sold it on the cheap to Americans. And so all of the property was lost that had been German-American places. It was a very important part of departure for the troops going to France. And then two years after the war, when we started disinterring the remains of soldiers buried in French cemeteries, to repatriate them back to New York and on to Points West, that's where they came back, to the harbor as well. And I mentioned Camp Merritt in New Jersey, up where I grew up in the exact town, as a matter of fact, where I grew up. There's the big obelisk there, also a picture of that in the book. But the train rail line, you can follow it down there. And I've walked that myself, and I've seen some of those markers there that tell you how far Hoboken is along the way. There's one great picture of Tenafly, New Jersey, some doughboy standing there outside what was the theater that I've gone to many times growing up. It's something to just see them standing there outside the theater, I guess, just on a stop there or maybe on a weekend out, you know, having a little shore leave, so to speak. And so you can still walk those places. I just love it. I love that about the transit system in New York and in the area that a lot of those lines are still there. These things haven't been obliterated. It's great to be able to go there. Great to go to Hoboken because you can still see plenty in Hoboken. There are beautiful war memorials. I just saw one today at Elysian Park, a Marine and a little girl that was dedicated in 1922, which was very, very early on for big community war memorials of that nature. 
And if you look closely on the plaque, there's a father and son who died together in the war. So it says father and son right there on the plaque. That's something you don't see very often. I wrote a blurb for Jim Leake's book, From the Dugouts to the Trenches, which talks about baseball players in the Great War. We interviewed Jim before for Nine Innings for the King, which was the book about how London stops for baseball. They have this great game. It's a lot of fun for the soldiers, and it kind of presages. It's very, very early in the Anglo-American relationship. It takes on a life of its own. And both of those books made me think of something that was very alien to me as somebody in now the 21st century, and that's baseball players, professional ball players, enlisting for the wars. We don't, we wouldn't think today of seeing a Derek Jeter put on a uniform and go out there and fight for his country. It's not the way that we do things. Captain Edward L. Grant Memorial Highway is another one of these roads that's named after soldiers. It's just north of Yankee Stadium, and yet as a ball player, he never wore pinstripes, no connection to the Yankees there, but it's right there. People may confuse the two, so I wanted to bring that up and let you talk about him a little bit. Who was that man they called Harvard Eddie, and how did he earn the honor of that road name? Eddie Grant was an incredible individual, and his legacy is still felt today, which I'll tell you about in a second. Eddie Grant was a light-hitting infielder and a Harvard graduate. Back then, you could actually go to Harvard and go into pro baseball. And he played in, in Cincinnati and Philly, but his New York ties, he played for the Giants. And back then, you know, the Giants and the Yankees both shared a baseball stadium until the Yankees built their own, but he played at the Polo Grounds, which was on the Manhattan side. He got that part of the Bronx named for him because that's where the veterans who had worked for the Giants had their clubhouse. It was on that road. And so that's why that part of the Bronx is named for Harvard Eddie. Eddie Grant, though, is still felt today. When the Giants moved to San Francisco in 1957, they did not take a war memorial to Eddie that used to be in the outfield. And if you ever see the great pictures of Willie Mays playing in the outfield, you can see his plaque and monument in the outfield, and they used to do a Memorial Day dedication to Eddie Grant. It disappeared. Hmm. And so San Francisco went winless and never had a world, any World Series victories. They dedicate a new plaque to him in San Francisco on the other side of the country, and they start winning the World Series again. <laughs> so what do the Mets do? They do their own Eddie Grant. So now there's an Eddie Grant Memorial at both City Field and in San Francisco for him. He's really a, a wonderful symbol of someone who did not have to serve, did not have to put on an army uniform, and he did, and he was tragically killed in the Oregon by shrapnel, and he is still buried in France. He, he never came back to the United States. We have reached the 11th hour, so to speak, and I have one final question. You dedicate World War One in New York to, among others, all the artisans and craftsmen who create our memorials and monuments. What enduring ties to the Great War do you hope your readers will develop to those memorials and monuments? What one do you want to see them going back to every time they come to the city, maybe, or stopping at every time they're walking on their way to work when they finish your book and they go out and live their lives, but remember the people who passed away? It's something that's in my book about Prospect Park. Prospect Park, Brooklyn, has the Brooklyn War Memorial, which is gorgeous. And when that was dedicated, the owner of the Brooklyn shipyard that funded it said to go to the park, look at the monument, and trace the names. Look at the names and find your name. 
because some mother, I'm paraphrasing, some mother thought so much of that name that they, she gave it to that son. And that person is gone, but you have that name. And that's what you should think about, is think about the names on the plaques and read those names, and then their memory will never be lost. Well, Kevin C. Fitzpatrick, author of World War One, New York, thank you so much for taking the time today to give us a tour. And I hope you'll meet up soon with me and give me a tour. Let me chew your ear off a little. Show me some of that great war in New York through your eyes. Help me put on your glasses. Do it in person with me. Maybe we'll shoot some videos for the folks at home so they can see some of these great sites. Until then, I want to thank you for your service and wish you the best of luck with the book and with this centennial year as we remember the great war 100 years ago. Dean, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be on your show. Again, the book is World War I New York, a guide to the city's enduring ties to the Great War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate from the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. For just a few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Kevin C. Fitzpatrick for joining us and for helping us pay tribute to the soldiers, nurses, and other men and women who fought in the Great War. Pay him a visit at fitzpatrickauthor.com or at K72nd Street on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this Memorial Day installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And thanks to everybody who sacrificed a family member in service to the United States. We leave you with the full version of our theme song, New York Ain't New York Anymore. The lyrics tell the tale of the changed city that the Doughboys found when they returned home after that horrific conflict and the flu pandemic that followed. It even includes nods to such everyday changes as wartime inflation. When I first heard this song, I thought that singer Dixie Coates was referring to that George M. Cohen statue, standing alone, ignored in Times Square, right across from that Father Duffy statue. But what I chalked up to a clever songwriter in 1925 turned out to be a coincidence. The Cohen statue, above his iconic phrase, Give My Regards to Broadway, wasn't erected until 1959. Three decades before, at the time this song hit the charts, Cohen was struggling to recapture the success he'd enjoyed before and during the war. Unfortunately for Georgie, the Great White Way, like so much in America, had changed after the armistice and would never be the same again. Standing alone, I saw Georgie Cohn somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh. Nobody noticed him there. I 
asked him why he didn't smile. He said in that old Cohen style, Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I remember, he said, when I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the white way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know, the Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico's. Music and laughter, the prices were right. A ten-dollar bill meant a wonderful night. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared when the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared. But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air were the first to hold guns when I rode over there. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.